morning. Go ahead and grab your Bibles this morning and open them up to Matthew chapter 24. We are going to continue our look at Christ's discourse in Matthew chapter 24. And as we look at verses 32 to 35, we're going to take a look at three things. Some of the particulars that need to be explained in the text. The forest, some of the trees we're going to look at. Then we're going to look at the forest, meaning the general application or meaning of the text and then a few words of application. We're going to look at all of these things in Matthew chapter 24, verses 32 to 35. And if you have found that, and you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, beginning in Matthew chapter 24, verse 32. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near. At the very gates, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Sorry, my clock is off, so I'm going to keep my phone up here to know the time. Truly, I say to you, this generation... This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. There aren't too many passages in Scripture that cause as much or more confusion than this particular passage has and does. There are some atheists, for example who in their efforts to discredit our Lord Jesus Christ and to disprove the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, they point to these words as proof that Jesus couldn't be God come to us in the flesh. He couldn't be who he claimed to be. Why? Because his prophetic announcements didn't come to pass as he had predicted they would. We didn't see, they'll say, the Son of Man returning on the clouds with great power and great glory. As he said in chapter 24, verse 30. He didn't, we didn't see that happen in that generation. And that, for them, proves that Jesus was nothing more than a failed messianic pretender. Others, well-respected servants of the Lord, trying to answer this, uh, this uh, argument, focus on the interpretation of the phrase, this generation. See that in verse 34? This generation generation. And rather than defining it according to its natural and obvious meaning, being that of Christ's contemporaries or the people that were living in the day of Christ when he spoke these words, they instead assert that this generation describes a whole number of different peoples and groups. Some say that the gen this generation, the, the generation Christ speaks of here, will be the generation that is living on the earth when the end times arrive. 
Which means that we today, or our children, or our grandchildren, could be the very generation that Jesus is speaking about in these verses. Still others assert that this generation speaks about a class of people, that class of people being sinners who stand against the people of God, those who oppose the will of the Lord, who rebel against the call of God, the evil, the wicked, the faithless, those who are at work right now to lead people astray. And others teach that the phrase, this generation, means the Jewish nation itself. Meaning, the Jewish peoples, the ethnic Jewish peoples, will never pass away. There will always be an ethnic Jewish remnant preserved by the Lord against all the odds as nations repeatedly plan and strategize and fight to eliminate and eradicate Israel from the face of the earth. But Israel will not pass away. They will not be done away with. They will not be extinguished because the Lord will maintain and ensure their survival even as all the nations who have rallied against them throughout history fall by the wayside and many of them are simply forgotten to the historical record. Now, while this text is not actually speaking about God's faithfulness to the Jewish nation, the Lord has indeed, and you can see it in numerous other texts, that you can see that God is preserving and will indeed preserve a remnant in ethnic Israel, as he has for thousands of years, because God is the God of steadfast love and steadfast faithfulness with those into whom he enters into covenant. There's a reason why there's no Amorites and Girgashites and Hittites and Jebusites anymore. They're all gone, but guess who's still here? Israel is still here. Hallelujah and praise to the God who is the God of steadfast love and faithfulness. And because he is the God of steadfast love and faithfulness, each and every one of us who are sitting here this morning can take great comfort in the God who saves us by grace through faith in his Son. We can take great comfort in the fact that you, by grace through faith in Christ, have entered into a covenant relationship with God, and he is faithful to see that out to the end. But in order to understand what Jesus is getting at here in this text with the phrase, this generation, an overview of the context into which it is spoken will be helpful. All we need to do is look at the signals that are given to us in this text. And this will reveal that when Jesus speaks of this generation, he is using the term in its most natural sense to refer to that generation of scribes and Pharisees overseeing and leading the nation of Israel in that day, but leading them astray. These were a particularly hardened and rebellious group a particularly hardened and rebellious generation who had, as Jesus predicted they would, filled up the measure of their fathers and by so doing brought upon themselves and that generation the devastating wrath of God. And also another phrase that we must pay close attention to in this text, in verse 34, is these things. You see that phrase in there too? These things. Things. That's a phrase that's used three times throughout chapter 24. And if you recall, it is the question that is asked by the disciples way back in verse 3 of chapter 24. 
Look back. The question is, tell us, when will these things take place? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So these things speak to a specific event, an event that is prophesied by Jesus immediately before they ask the question. You remember, they were leaving the city of Jerusalem and they were marveling at the temple and marveling at the stones and marveling at the architecture of the temple and all of its buildings. And Jesus, as he noticed them marveling and pointing out to him the buildings, looked at them and said these words in verse 2 of chapter 24. You see all of these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So when the disciples ask Jesus the question about when will these things take place, they are clearly and definitely asking about the throwing down of the stones that make up Jerusalem and the temple. But while they are asking that particular question and asking Jesus about that specific event, we must remember that in their minds, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple signaled the end of the age. If the temple is destroyed, if the city is destroyed, then immediately or very soon the Lord is going to return and establish the messianic kingdom, and it'll all happen in quick succession. And so when they ask Jesus this question, when they ask about when these things will take place, they are in some way asking about the end times. But Jesus in his answer, which spans chapter 24 and chapter 25, when Jesus Jesus in his answer will make a clear distinction, a clear delineation between these things that will take place in this generation before this generation passes away and if you look at 24 verse 36, you'll see, "But but that day and hour... Right? So you see there's a clear distinction between the these things and that day and hour, or those days when the sun is darkened, when the moon stops reflecting its light, when the stars fall from heaven, and when the Son of Man returns on the clouds in power and great glory. That day and hour about which no one but the Father in heaven knows the timing. So as we remember, or to, in order to understand that these things and the this generation, let's overview and let's remember what has led to these words in our text and explain how we conclude that this generation speaks to the contemporaries of Jesus Christ. And that these things refer to an event that we already know has passed in history, an event that foreshadows an even greater tribulation to come in the future. I want you to look again to the interaction that occurred between Jesus and the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. Here Christ leveled a series of seven woes or seven condemnations against these religious leaders in Jerusalem. He pronounced a string of denunciations upon the very scribes and Pharisees who boasted, take a look at verse 30, who boasted that If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. In other words, 
These men that Jesus is denouncing believed that had they been around in the days of old when their ancestors repeatedly rejected the cries of the prophets that God had sent to them, cries of repent and return to the Lord and he will return to you. Even going so far as to reveal that rejection by killing those very prophets, these scribes and Pharisees believe that had they been there, had they lived in the, during these days of such venerable messengers and prophets, they contend that they would have put a stop to the murderous rage of their ancestors and saved the very lives of the prophets their fathers put to death. In other words, you can see them, right? Had we been there, none of that would have ever happened. And yet... And yet, here they are, standing in front of Jesus, about to repeat the very same wickedness of their fathers. They're about to re reveal their rebellion that is aligned with the one that they think themselves so different from. Here they were, hearing the same message brought to them by yet another prophet sent to them by the Lord. The message of repentance and return and faith and obedience. Only this time, the prophet is not simply a prophet. The one standing before them is God's very own unique, one-of-a-kind son. This Jesus that is calling the religious leaders to repentance is the second person of the triune God who took on flesh, made his dwelling among us, and lived in, among humanity for the very purpose of glorifying his Father in heaven by seeking and saving the lost. And while it is true that every single human being on this planet who at this moment rejects Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, is at the ver this very moment lost, living as God's enemy, living in a state of rebellion against God, a state in which every single second they refuse to believe, every minute they put off turning to Christ and laying hold of the forgiveness and the salvation and the eternal life offered to them by grace through faith in Christ, Every second they do this, they risk their very soul's descent into the eternal torments of God's wrath. While this is the reality, this is the true state of affairs facing all unrepentant sinners, there is a di different type of rebellion among these scribes and Pharisees to whom Jesus talks on this day. None were so hardened to the point of no return as these religious leaders, as these scribes and these Pharisees who persistently confronted and repeatedly slandered and plotted against Jesus during his earthly ministry. These men, tasked with overseeing the spiritual life and health and pulse of Israel, simply refused to take Jesus at his word even though all the evidence pointed to and confirmed his identity as one who had come from God, and more, that he was indeed Lord and Messiah. He performed miracles and acts of power that were reserved for God alone, like rebuking the wind and the waves and calming the storm and controlling the weather. 
The Old Testament speaks of such power as belonging to deity alone. He also performed wondrous signs that were, according to the Old Testament, reserved for the Messiah himself. The greatest of which is opening the eyes of those who are born blind. A miracle so extraordinary and so remarkable that when Jesus did it in John chapter 9, the man whose eyes had been opened declared to the Pharisees who were questioning him in John 9, 31, he said, We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Listen to this. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. But rather than believe, the religious leaders, the very men that Jesus is condemning here in Matthew 23, said to the man who had been healed, said to the man who is an obvious witness to the fact that Jesus is Messiah, come to Israel, looked at the man and said, you were born in utter sin. And you would teach us? And the text says, and they cast him out. This is how hardened these men were. With the evidence right there, indisputable, right before their eyes. The healed man is right there. They even asked his parents, was this man born blind? They did all of their due diligence, and the miracle was real. But rather than believe, they cast the guy out of the synagogue. And had these religious leaders been able to produce something, anything, by which to discredit Jesus, they would have. Jesus said, for example, that he was the son of David, a necessity for anyone who would claim to be Messiah. They must, in order to fulfill the prophecy and be suited for the role of being Messiah, be a physical descendant of King David. And in that day, before the destruction of the temple, all of the genealogical records in Israel's history were kept in the temple. So all these men had to do was go to the temple, make the search, which no doubt they did, to confirm or deny Jesus' claim. And if Jesus was lying, they could show the receipts and the conversation would end right then and right there, but they couldn't because Jesus is who he said he is. Had they been able to deny the miracle-working power of Jesus, had they been able to catch him in some theological conundrum, had they been able to trip him up with one of their numerous deceptive questions that were specifically designed for this purpose, as Matthew puts it in chapter 22, verse 15, questions that were designed to entangle Jesus in his words, questions like this in 22:17, tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now Jesus knew he understood the malice behind the question. They hoped to trap him, believing that whatever answer Jesus were to give to this question would provide them with whatever it was they needed to discredit him, whether it was to Israel as a Roman sympathizer, because if Jesus would have said, yes, it is lawful to pay your taxes, they could say, see, this man supports Roman oppression. 
Or had he said, no, it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, they would have gone to the Romans and said, see, this man is promoting treason and insurrection. They thought they had him, but they didn't. Because the religious leaders were never able to trap Jesus, never able to find anything they could capitalize on to end the debate, and so they simply resorted to plotting amongst themselves how they might destroy him. And while that's all really bad, there is something that makes it even worse. What makes this generation uniquely evil is that these scribes and Pharisees knew that Jesus had been sent to them by God. They knew it. And they still conspired to kill him anyway. Imagine that. Imagine being one who presents themselves as God's representative to the nation, who takes it upon themselves to lead God's people and to teach God's people in the ways of the Lord, but who, when one of the Lord's representatives arrives and calls you to repentance, your inclination isn't to listen, but to kill him. So you can hold on to your sinful rebellion. Talk about hardness of heart. And how do I know this? How do I know that they knew? Well, listen, they knew quite early. If you go back to John chapter 3, early in the public ministry of Christ, one of the Pharisees, a man named Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night. And in John chapter 3, verse 2, said this to him, and listen, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Did you hear that? Did you see it? Rabbi, we know. We know that you are a teacher come from God. And who is this we that Nicodemus is speaking about? It's the very scribes and Pharisees of whom he is a part and member. They, as a group, knew very early that Jesus had been sent to Israel by God, and yet, even so, rather than listening to him, rather than obeying his call to repentance and faith, and calling upon the people of Israel to do the same, they set their faces against him. They preferred the maintaining of their proud and lofty and established positions of respect and admiration among the people of Israel, and so they refused, and they ensured that the people refused to bow the knee to their rightful king. They preferred their honor over God's honor, and even went so far, they even went so far as to accuse Jesus in the hearing of the crowds of being in league with Satan of being in league with the demonic realm. They publicly slandered this man that they knew to be from God, saying that he was in league with the devil. These are the men who claimed to lead Israel in the ways of the Lord. These men told those very people that the source behind Christ's power and ministry was Satan himself. And they said all of this fully aware that Jesus is a teacher come from God. What utter 
blasphemy. And so as they made such accursed statements, they committed themselves, as they committed themselves to a course of leading Israel away from its God, as they actively labored to turn all eyes away from God and point them on themselves, this self-obsession, this degree of rebellion brought them to this point where they would rather slander, reject, and ultimately kill their king then trust him. And this unique evil, this particularly wicked sort and degree of rebellion culminated in Jesus declaring to them that you are alive but you're dead. Their complete condemnation was pronounced by Jesus while they still lived as he said to them in the clearest and most unambiguous of terms in chapter 23, verse 32 to 36. Look at it. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. And listen, so that on you, you see that? So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. The very same phrase, almost, that we see in verse 34 of chapter 24. You see it twice in there, don't you? On you, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, and all these things will come upon this generation. So whatever these things are, they will fall upon that particularly and uniquely evil and rebellious generation. The generation that fills up the measure of wickedness from their fathers. The penalty and wrath of God for all the righteous blood shed on earth from that point. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Now if you look at the Hebrew ordering of the biblical books... Second Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew ordering. And so the first martyr in the Old Testament is Abel. The last one, according to the Jewish ordering, is Zechariah. And so it's a way of saying, from A to Z, all that blood is going to fall on you. This generation whose hardness of hearts, this generation who fills up the measure of their fathers by seeking and securing the death of yet another prophet, a prophet they know to be from God. And continuing, they, will not, they won't stop there. They will continue in their rage and fury to flog and to persecute and to kill and to crucify the men who are sent to them by Jesus after his ascension. You remember the first thing he said to the disciples, begin in Jerusalem. Bring the message of the gospel once again to the very rebels who put me to death. Talk about the grace of our Lord. And you can read about how it all plays out in the book of Acts. 
But these men simply didn't care. In fact, this generation of leaders even instigated the crowds. And listen to this. There's, there's not many lines in Scripture that are more tragic than this one. These men instigated the crowds to call down upon themselves the very condemnation Jesus spoke of during his trial. You remember, Pilate sought to release Jesus, and he said to the people, I am innocent of this man's blood. And what did the crowds yell in response? Look at Matthew 27, 25. I want you to put, lay eyes on this. Matthew 27, 25. All the people answered, His blood be upon us and our children. This is what these men led the nation of Israel to. Let this man's blood be on us, and not only on us, but our children. They had no clue what they were asking for here. They had no clue what was going to come of this. They had no clue what these wicked men were leading them to. But their wish would be fulfilled, and that blood would indeed fall upon them in that generation. And it would fall upon their children. What parent would ever, ever wish for such a thing? This is the generation to and about whom the parable of Matthew 21 speaks. I know I'm getting you to flip around a lot, but you guys seem to know your Bibles well. I can hear you all flipping those pages well. Matthew 21, Jesus tells a parable of, about a master of a house who planted a vineyard. And he went away and he leased that vineyard to tenants with the expectation that those tenants would produce fruit and give it to the master of the house. And so he sent a bunch of messengers, and each time those messengers were beaten and or killed, until finally the master of the house sent his son to collect the harvest. And we read in chapter 21, verse 37 to 39, he, meaning the master of the house, sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son, but when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Again, did you notice the parable indicates that the tenants knew that this man that had come to collect the harvest was the son. The son of the master and it was because this was the son of the master that they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him so that they might own the vineyard themselves. This is exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees were planning to do with Jesus, the Son of God. And what was the penalty enacted in that parable? Look at verse 41. What will the owner of the vineyard do to those men? Verse 41, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. He will put those wretches to a miserable death. 
and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his fruits in their season. So you see that? The penalty will fall upon the tenants who kill the son. And in like manner, there would be grave penalties enacted against that uniquely evil generation of scribes and Pharisees in Israel. All of that to say, when you read that phrase, this generation, that is who Jesus is speaking about. This uniquely, this particularly unusually wicked, evil, and rebellious, hardened to the point of no return generation. Those who knew the identity of Jesus and yet chose to kill him anyway. Those who knew who Jesus was and still sought to lead the entire nation away from the God that they had been called to serve and honor and obey. So Jesus said to them, this generation, verse 34, will not pass away until all of these things take place. So now the next question is, what are these things? What are these things that must come upon that generation? Well, once again, let's look at the context of the question that is posed to Jesus by the disciples in the early part of Matthew 24. Again, in verse 3, they asked, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? See the question? When will these things be? So you remember, right, after Jesus denounced the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus then mourned and he wept over the city of Jerusalem with words full of pathos and passion and intense emotion. He expressed a tragic sorrow for the very city that was so highly regarded throughout the Old Testament in God's plan because it would soon endure desolation unlike it had ever seen before. This very city that the Old Testament rejoiced in, calling it in Psalm 46, the holy habitation of the Most High God, the city in which God is in the midst of her. That very city must now, because of this generation, suffer the consequences of their villainous evildoing. And so when Jesus left the city, he told the disciples exactly what is going to happen. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now for the Israelites, a generation covers a span of 40 years. 40 years in the desert, right? 40 years in the wilderness so that the whole generation could die off so that the next generation could go into the promised land. 40 years is a generation in Israel. Jesus spoke these words approximately A.D. 33. And 37 years later, within the generation referenced, the stones of Jerusalem and the temple were completely thrown down. History records the destruction of Jerusalem quite vividly, as in A.D. 66, the Jews living in Jerusalem once again revolted against Roman leadership, Roman rule, and Roman authority over the city. And so in response... Then Emperor Vespasian called his son, General Titus, the future Roman emperor, along with his Roman legions to crush and subdue this latest rebellion in Jerusalem. And the Jewish 
freedom fighters fought for a while. They fought with great tenacity, but eventually Rome's sheer numbers, training, and military might caused them to break through Jerusalem's fortifications. And as the rabid Roman military forces poured into the city, they indiscriminately slaughtered over one million Jews in the city. A million. Men, women, pregnant and nursing mothers, children, infants, anyone within a sword's reach. And those who escaped the sword didn't fare much better as over 95,000 Jewish captives were taken and sold into slavery throughout the Roman Empire. And Titus, tired of these never-ending Jewish revolts, then commanded his forces to completely and thoroughly destroy the city. Make this city look like it had never been inhabited before. And as the Romans went about massacring the Jews, like I've said before in a previous message, those Jews fled to the temple for protection. The temple was the last thing standing, and a bunch of the Jews went into the temple. And history records that the Roman military barred them up inside the temple, and drunken soldiers celebrating their victory set the temple on fire. And the fire spread so quickly and burned at such high temperatures that the gold all over the temple began to melt and make its way into the crevices and the cracks in the, between the stones of the temple. Those very stones that had so impressed the disciples only 40 years before. And Rome not being one to waste gold, Titus commanded the people to collect and salvage the gold that had made its way into the crevices. And in order to do that, they had to knock down all of the stones, leaving no stone upon another as they got all of the gold that had made its way in. As I've mentioned in previous sermons again, this destruction was so complete that even today with all of our archaeological advancements, we still cannot, even though we know where the temple was, we still cannot pinpoint the precise location of the Holy of Holies in the temple, that place where the Ark of the Covenant once resided. And after this destruction, the city of Jerusalem remained uninhabited for another 70 years until Emperor Hadrian rebuilt another city on its ruins dedicated to the Roman god Jupiter. And the Jews were barred from entering the city on pain of death. This, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the throwing down of the stones and the terrors of God's wrath and judgment upon the city is what is spoken of by that phrase, these things. Now here's an aside. Because we just heard that a million Jews were killed as a result of God's wrath. We just heard that 95,000 Jews were taken off into slavery as a result of God's wrath. And is this not one of the great arguments that many today will use to make a Christian feel embarrassed by service to God? Look at all of the things that God has done in the Old Testament. Look at the wrath 
This is God's doing that he poured out his wrath on Jerusalem and a million people died? Is this the God that you say you serve? Christians, you know that one of my exhortations is never to be on the back foot. And as you read God's word, I want you to always remember this. God is not embarrassed by the things that he has done. God is not embarrassed about the fact that those who rebel against him will end up spending eternity in hell. God is not embarrassed by the fact that he has meted out his wrath and justice upon, his perfect wrath and justice upon sinners who so deserve it. And the only reason why any of us are here, ourselves not enduring that very wrath, is because God in his mercy has showered grace upon you and I. The Lord is not embarrassed by his perfect holiness, his perfect justice, and his perfect wrath. So when you go back into the Old Testament and you read the numerous times when the Lord gives the promised land into the hands of Israel and directs them to go into that land and destroy everyone, man, woman, child, livestock, everything, that's not given to us to be embarrassed. The Lord reveals, the Lord chose to do those things and reveal them to us. He didn't hide them from his word. Now why? These displays of God's holiness ought to bring us to a point where we recognize that these are mere shadows of the greater eternal wrath that awaits everyone who, like the scribes and Pharisees, reject Christ. What awaits you who decide to turn away from the free offer that Christ holds out to you, what awaits you cannot be explained. It is so devastating. It is so terrible that even these pictures of cleansing land and millions of people dying because of God's wrath, they don't begin to explain or to describe what awaits the unrepentant sinner in eternity. Rather than being offended by the works of the Lord, the, works, the very works he is not offended by, the very works he included for our instruction, our task is to learn from them. And if you are unsaved this morning, they ought to bring you to a state of trembling. And if you are saved this morning, they ought to bring you to a place of rejoicing that you are spared from this future wrath because Christ has been merciful to you. I remember sitting in my basement with a friend who has turned into an atheist and he brought this very argument up to me and he said, how could you serve a God like that? I could never serve a God like that. And all I could say to him was, I do and I love him. And you kind of see him like, oh, well, that didn't go the way I planned. And that was it. But far from, so far from being a failed prophecy... Everything that Jesus said would happen came to pass in both the time and the manner spoken of by Christ. This generation, meaning the contemporaries that were alive when Jesus Christ spoke these words, and these things, meaning the stones of the city of Jerusalem being overturned and destroyed, where there would be no stone left upon another, all came to pass exactly as Christ said it would. Now that we understand the details, 
what's the point of these verses as a whole? We spent some time looking at the trees, now let's look at the forest for a minute. These, along with verse 36 and following, are all about staying, two things, staying awake, being prepared and on the lookout for, if you are disciples in the days of Jesus awaiting these things to come upon that generation, and if you are here this morning, 2,000 years later, looking for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, the call is to be prepared and to be vigilant and to be awake as we await the day when the Lord arrives and gathers up His church to Himself and starts and resumes His plan to save Israel and fulfill His promises to her. That's one general outline of this. And the second is, these words of Christ are about providing us with confidence and certainty in the words and pronouncements of Jesus Christ. First, look again at 32. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So after giving the basic eschatological outline, after giving the timeline of events that will come uh, in that generation and the events that will usher in the end of the age, Jesus called on the disciples to consider this lesson, to think about this parable, this illustration of the fig tree. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know summer is near. The idea being that as the signs of spring begin to show themselves and the buds and the blossoms of the tree appear on the branches, then you know that summer is approaching and the time for harvest and fruit will soon be at hand. And so at that moment, it's time to begin making the necessary preparations for gathering the forthcoming fruit. When farmers or gardeners know that the time for harvest is near, certain groundwork is laid. Certain arrangements are made so as to be ready to gather in and, if necessary, preserve what's been harvested and grown. In like manner, verse 33, so also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. When you see the stones of Jerusalem overturned, Know that he is near. Know that he is at the very gates. Now, there's a little bit of confusion here because this phrase, the way that it's quoted in the English, makes it sound like it is referring to the timing of Jesus' return. But this phrase, near and at the very gates, is not speaking to timing, but it is speaking to certainty. When Scripture says Jesus is near or Jesus is at hand, the point is not that it's about to happen quickly, but rest in this fact. As the word and promise of Christ always comes to pass, just as you witnessed it in the destruction of Jerusalem and the throwing down of the temple, know that it is just as certain that Jesus will one day return on the clouds with power and great glory. This is how James, for example, encouraged his, the recipients of his letter, saying in James chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it, until it receives the early and late rains. 
You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The coming of the Lord is absolutely certain. In other words, be patient. Strengthen your hearts. Be resolutely committed because the return of Christ is an absolute certainty. And Peter, speaking to scoffers who questioned why it was that the Lord was taking so long to return, wrote to these people saying, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. You see, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise to you, the promise meaning that of his certain return, but he is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So there will always be those who mock and ridicule the Christian's eager expectation of our Lord's return. But those times and dates, those are beyond our pay grade. What we rest in is the certainty. We are called as we wait for Him to descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And when he does, the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with, with the Lord, something we will discuss in greater detail in two weeks. This is what we wait for, knowing it's a certainty. So while the events of AD 70 were extremely tragic, they were foretold by Jesus, they were the repercussions of Israel's rebellion, these events were actually the outworking of Matthew 23, 35. On you will come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. And when the disciples, the call is for the disciples who are still alive watching these things come to pass, they were to know with certainty, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that his promise about returning, his promise about coming at the end of the age will as assuredly come to pass as the stones being overturned from the temple in the city came to pass. Jesus prophesied about both the overturning of Jerusalem's stones and his inevitable return at the end of the age. And here we learn that one is just as guaranteed and as inevitable as the other. Because everything Christ declares is perfectly true. That's what Jesus said next. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Listen, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Meaning, if there is anything in this world that we can trust without equivocation, it is the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus speaks, when he makes a promise, about anything, when he tells of future events, while all of creation might pass away, that promise will never pass away. Throughout the Old Testament, mountains are used to symbolize that which is constant and firm and stable. You see, mountains simply don't move. They don't pass away. They are representative of permanence. But notice what Jesus did here. Heaven and earth will pass away before my words do. Even that which we consider fixed and enduring will pass away before a single letter of Christ's word does. Listen, creation itself is less stable, less secure than the words and the promises of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so, if Jesus prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem in that generation, guess what's going to happen? The destruction of Jerusalem in that generation. And if Christ promised us that one day He will return to gather us up to be with Him where He is before the days of great tribulation as described in Revelation chapters 6 to 16, then that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. And if Jesus promises to return after the tribulation of those days on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory to gather his elect from the four corners of the earth and from one end of heaven to the other, as he declares in 2431, then that's exactly what's going to happen. And for us today who love the Lord and who trust in his word and whose soul confidence and soul hope is found in him, you and I can live our lives now when we open up the words of this book and listen to everything, hear everything that is being spoken to us in here. We can live in the light of its surety. We can live in the hope and the promises that are given in this book We can live knowing that they are all certain and all guaranteed. When Jesus said to the disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to be with me where I am, a word and a promise that is true for every single one of us, guess what that means? That means Jesus is going to take you to be with him where he is. And you can live in that knowledge right now as you are watching the world you live in get increasingly nuts it's getting more rebellious and more wicked and more evil seemingly with every passing day and you and I are always ever increasingly at risk of being harassed and persecuted by that very world as Jesus said would happen in the early stages of Matthew 24 And so how are you going to respond when those days and when those harassments and when those persecutions fall upon you? Things here are going to go wrong. They're going to break down. Your plans are going to fall through. Your circumstances will not come to pass in the way that you hope they will. There are times when you will get sick, when people you love pass away, when people you love choose to walk in and live in destructive paths, when people you love turn from you even though you've tried everything in your power to love them and help them. You are going to experience turmoil and pain and hurt and disillusionment in this world in a a variety of ways and for a variety of reasons, some of which are brought on by others, some of which are brought on by yourself. Sometimes it will seem like our lives are nothing more than a series of unfortunate events and where are you going to turn? And upon what are you, and in who are you going to rest and be certain and sure as all of those things take place in your life? Where are you going to turn? In the midst of it all, Christ's words are our comfort in this season. As we look forward to the fulfillment of his promises and in, in the midst of the upheavals and the disturbances in our own lives. The only thing that we have to cling to is Christ's word. And I mean, I've heard many of you say it. I know I've said it. If I didn't have Jesus, I don't know how I'd get through this. 
If I didn't know what God's word promised me, if I didn't, re, if I didn't know that the sufferings and the trials of these, this present time are not even worth comparing to the joys that will be mine in Christ when this is all said and done, I don't know what I would do now. This is how we live. This is how we can rejoice while everyone else seems to be just going bananas. I noticed it at the shows I was just at. I was out selling some furniture, and I noticed that the 10 days I spent in Toronto from last year to this year, there was a marked and precipitous decline in decorum among human beings. I couldn't, it, it, I couldn't figure out what has happened from last year to this. I mean, I know our world's been through a lot of turmoil, trial, and upheaval, but it was, I was just, there's no words. I wanted to get back here. I'm like, get me back to God's people. That's all, that's where I want to be. The only thing I, I have to cling to, the only thing you have to cling to in your workplace, the only thing I have to cling to when there's 10,000, as the email said, heathens around me, is this promise that Jesus made to us, eternal life. I should end there. All glory be to God. Father, we thank you and we praise you. You are worthy of our confidence. You are worthy of our hope. You are the anchor to which we ground ourselves as we live in this world. Your word and your promises are more certain and more sure and more secure than the very creation we live in. They're more sure and stable than the grounds upon which we walk. And so, Lord, as we, your children, look to the ways that your promises were fulfilled in that generation, may we rest in the fact that as your promises were fulfilled there, that is an, a marker of this certain fact that all of your promises that are stated and given to us in Scripture will be fulfilled and are being fulfilled. So, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us the ability to cling to those promises to hope in those promises, to be able to live here and now as we look forward to our eternal home, as we labor to fulfill the Great Commission, teaching people to, teaching the nations everything you've commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Pray that when rejection and rebellion and difficulty and hardship come our way, that the first thing we do, the first thing we do and we can only do this because your Holy Spirit would help us do it to remember your promises. We pray and we ask this all in the name of our great promise-keeping, promise-giving Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.